Welcome to Sojourn. We are a church that exists for the glory of God. We exist to make disciples by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And we do that through the Word of God. The Bible is our book. As the authoritative and inspired Word of God is to inform and instruct all that we do. And so we turn to it each and every week with, with great expectation, with great hope and with great joy that we get to hear from God Himself in His Word. We are in Genesis chapter 1 this morning, and we will be going through the, the days of creation. It's a good reminder before we open the Word, just to be reminded of, of how great God is. And so before we ask our questions of the text, and before we fill our minds and, and try to figure out what's going on in the text, it's, it's good to have a, a spirit of humility before this incomparable God where we'd have an approach before Him much more like Job's at the end of the book of Job, where He puts His hand over His mouth, rather than us coming and asking all these questions before. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. And and let's pray this prayer together as we open up the Word of God. This is from Psalm 119. Decided not to read the passage. It's a long one. Keep going. Two, three, four, four, five, and here we go. Let's pray this prayer together. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of Your Word. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you guys read the comments section often in blogs or articles or, or even sometimes Facebook posts or Twitter posts, but some of the, the comments on these things can be some of the, the harshest words that you could ever read anywhere. If you ever read words that are responding to articles, they can say some of the worst things about people and make it really, really personal really, really quickly. So my suggestion is if you, if you have some sort of blog post, or I would suggest not reading the comments afterwards because they can be brutal. And I think what's happened is, is that we've set up this place where, where we, can, we can be really, really impersonal on the internet. So you can say lots of things and everyone can have their own opinion, but the response and the back and forth, the communication is really impersonal because it's all through the web. It's not face-to-face, it's not even talking, communicating with one another through the phone or, or even messages, it's just straight internet. And so it makes it really easy for us to take things very impersonally and fire off harsh rebukes or harsh comments or even very personal comments about people we don't even know. When everyone is given a voice, everyone is given an opinion. And I think that when we approach Genesis 1, that we can kind of be like that. We can make it this very impersonal thing where, where we're approaching the text from an impersonal perspective, that it's just words on a page and that we just start firing off our suggestions and our questions and our comments without thinking about the personal aspect of it. See, we can question, we can comment, we can agree, we can disagree, all very impersonally without thinking about what we're actually meant to see behind this creation account. Because this creation account isn't an impersonal account at all. And the author of Genesis never meant for it to be this impersonal approach to to us through His Word. God is behind it all. There's a Creator behind this creation. And so as we approach this creation account, we need to remember that personal side of it. That we're not just speaking back to words on a page, but we're thinking and we're questioning back to a a God who is personal and who wants to communicate with us. 
And the reality is, is that we're not meant to separate the creation and the account of creation from the Creator. We so often do that. But God would never intend for that to happen as we read through this account. And so as we go through Genesis chapter 1 and these days of creation, we have big questions, don't we? I mean, the big question as we think about these days are, are what is this day that He talks about? We see in, in, chapter, in verse 3, there was evening and morning the, the first day. Right? So, so right from the beginning, what, what is a day? That's the big question here. Like, what days are we talking about? Surely you've heard uh, the, the argument back and forth on, is this a 24-hour period or is this an age day? Well, I want to say first off, I think this is a question of interpretation. That this is not a question of, of biblical or, or scientific literacy. That this is an interpretation question. I think one author frames it well, and his last name is Frame, so fits there. He says, The question is not whether we should abandon the teaching of these chapters to accommodate secular science. The question is, what does this passage actually say? It's an exegetical issue. And so as we approach the text, we're not trying to like accommodate science or, or be really literal in the Bible. Like We're trying to say, what does the passage say? What does it actually say? How do we interpret it rightly? We want to do this with every passage that we turn to in the Scripture. And so, there's a couple different views on these days of creation. The first is that they're, they're 24 hours. This makes sense, right? It's simple. When you see day in the Bible, you think 24-hour period. Sun up, sun down, the night, we got a day. That's what we would consider. So there's, there's this big movement of, of 24 hours. That's what we're talking about when we speak about the days of creation. We're talking about 24 hours. Simple. And simple oftentimes in the Scripture is best. As, as much as we like to be smart and advanced and uh, push things in a little bit further and know all the... Sometimes the, the simplest interpretation oftentimes is the best interpretation of the Scripture. And so 24 hours seems to, to fit that. Beyond that, we have evidence that it says morning and evening, the first day. As we get into the text, we'll see this. It says morning and evening. Well, well, what else is he trying to communicate if he's, if he's saying morning and evening other than it's a 24-hour day? And so one in this view, if you think that it's 24-hour days, you can say, well, how could this author possibly put it even more clearly for us if he were to? Like, it seems clear that he is using language that would be 24 hours. And so unless otherwise indicated by the context... Surely he is speaking of 24-hour days. This also makes sense of the Sabbath. We, we, we see one day is a day of rest. So six days of work, one day of rest. This makes sense for us. We have weeks that are organized around this creation account. That we work for six days, we rest. Those are 24-hour periods for us. And so it makes sense to take these days, as we talk about, as 24-hour as periods. It also helps to, to look at other Scripture. And, and in Exodus chapter 20, we see in four and six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Now that seems like a, a tough one to go against. Other passages of Scripture are speaking into this, and it says, in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and all that's in them. So at the outset, it seems like these days of creation, speaking of 24-hour periods, seems to be pretty solid. But there's some problems with this view. Morning and evening. Didn't even happen until day four. That's when we see the sun come about. So that's strike one, right? That's, that's a big issue. How do you explain that we don't have sun and moon until day four, and yet we be speaking of 24-hour periods in verse three and onward? So that's a problem. Beyond that, we see that, that the scripture talks about day. It's not always a 24-hour period. You look in chapter two, verse four. It says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day. 
That was a time period. It wasn't just a 24-hour period. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, Moses is speaking, oddly enough, and he says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, as a day. So we know that, that, that there's this... In Scripture, day can be used for longer periods of time. And even in 2-4, like very close context, day was used as a period of time. So we see that, that it's not always necessary that when we see day in the Scripture, that we interpret it as 24-hour period of time. Beyond that, we see data from, from various disciplines. Astronomy, geology, just dating uh, technology that we have today. We, we see other evidence that, that maybe that maybe there's something older here than just what we would see if, if it was a 24-hour day, six-day creation week. So we, we think about this. We, we weigh the evidence. And here's the thing. Here's the, the, the God's universe was observable. And it's made to be that way. We're made to be able to learn things from what we just see and touch and can sense and know. God made these things to know. This is a good thing. And so when we look at some of the other evidence from astronomy or geology or so forth, we see, man, it looks like, it appears from just what we can observe, that things are a lot, lot older than, than what we think that the 24-hour day period would, would let on. And so there's this appearance of age giving the impression from people that are just observing things that it's much, much older than what it would hint in the Scripture. So we have this, this kind of... Is this day of 24 hours? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like observable evidence can, can bring us to a different place. Well, we, we know that there's also problems with this view as well, right? So we, we, we think about some of the problems here. We see that morning and evening is in the context. It, it seems kind of tough to refute that. Like, why else would you put morning and evening there? You, you have to, doesn't that make most sense to take them as 24 hour periods? And so if you think that the day is an age, you, you're going to need to reckon with that. Something I think that's in favor of the day age is, is thinking about the seventh day. The seventh day, if you look in chapter 2, verse 3, it said, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now this rest, we see, is not listed as morning and evening on that last day. In fact, in Psalm 45 and Hebrews 4, Jim will talk about this in a few weeks, but this isn't a 24-hour period. This is a period that's ongoing. And so we wouldn't take the seventh day and interpret it as a 24-hour period. So the day-age people would say, well, that's not a 24-hour period. So why would we expect all the other six days to be 24-hour periods? But I think it's pretty good evidence. God's rest wasn't 24 hours on that seventh day. So we shouldn't think of the first six days as 24 hours. We're imaging that Sabbath rest with one day a week. And so we can be imaging the other days of creation in our week as well, and then not need to be 24-hour periods. So there's, there's no reason that the six days couldn't be just imaging the God's creation, even though there are six days in a week or 24 hours. There's no reason they couldn't image God's creation that was much, much longer. It would be a, a God work week with our work week, which could be different time periods. One author says it like this, that the seven days of the human week are copies of the seven days of the divine week. The sun-divided days are images of the God-divided days. So our days can correspond to God's, but they don't have to be identical to God's as we see in the seventh day. Well, there's problems with this, right? There's other passages. How do you reckon with Exodus chapter 20 when it says that God created the earth in, in six days? You have to work yourself around that passage. I also think that when you're thinking about days as ages and times and periods, it's really hard to know what is a time and period. How long could that have been? And it seems like if we just look around, like there had to have been death. Before the fall, if we, if we take that. Right? To, to have been that long of a period, then 
Didn't death enter into that period for, for things to work the way they're supposed to work? And so that seems like a problem that comes up. And so, man, we, we look at a couple different theories. We're thinking, is it 24 hours or is it longer? And, and the answer is like, those are both good options. And it's really hard to choose between the two because there's, there's holes in each of them. Big holes that you have to work around. And so what's the conclusion? Well, I conclude as long, along with St. Augustine, who said, what kind of days these were is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible to determine. So how old is the earth? I, I don't know. I don't know. Which one do I agree with? Whichever one I hear last. <laughs> right? And here's the thing, is that we don't know these things, and so when we come to this, we, we hold these days loosely. We don't hold on to them tightly. We don't need to hold on to them tightly. Our view of God does not change depending upon whether these are 24-hour periods or longer periods. Both have some substance to their arguments. Both have some major holes to their arguments. And so we hold it loosely. It does not affect any core doctrine of the Christian faith whatsoever. We hold on to the Trinity tightly. We hold on to the resurrection tightly. We know those things. We're way more sure of those things. We'll go to death for those things. I'm not going to die for 24-hour days. Sounds like you guys won't either. We hold this loosely, and so when we come to this, we can display humility. And this is the kind of humility that we want to display, not, not just even as we approach the text today, but in our groups. We don't have to be right. Because we don't even know what is right. We can show charity and love. Humility and kindness to one another. All those things that we're already supposed to be doing to one another when we approach this text. And we need to think that the, the 24-hour people aren't necessarily trying to ignore science and say forget about all that stuff. They can have great scientific views. The people that think it's, a, it's an age rather than just a 24-hour day aren't, aren't trying to forget about the biblical evidence and just say like, we don't care about what the Bible says, we're going to accommodate science. That's not what's going on. Neither side is, is necessarily being ignorant. Neither side is necessarily has a higher or lower view of Scripture. Both sides are trying to come to the text and, and try to interpret it. This is a question of interpretation. So it might say, some might say that, well, the 24-hour people, they're taking the Bible literally, and all those other crazy people, they don't take the Bible literally, so they're kind of under. And that's not what's going on here. And on top of that, we, we don't necessarily take the Bible literally. Right? Jesus says, I'm a door. We don't literally think that Jesus is a door, right? We let the Scripture guide us in our interpretation. We want to take the literal sense. Like, what is Jesus really saying? He's, well, he's using metaphorical language. He's not literally a door, but He's the way. Through Him, through belief in Him, we, we can come to the Father. And so we take the literal sense of the text. And so when we come to this, like we don't necessarily have to say, because we always interpret literally, we have to take day as 24 hours. No, we take the literal sense. What does the Bible command of us here? What does it demand in the context that we, we take this? And I think that this is... Clearly an interpretation issue and that the scripture here does not demand that it be 24 hour periods. It just doesn't demand it in the context. It might be 24 hours, but I don't think that the author is demanding that it be 24 hours. It might be much, much longer. But we need to be careful here that we don't impose our standards on the text. Once again, that we don't impose our questions and our agenda upon the text. See, the biblical authors had a better, different agenda than what we have. When we come to this text... We're wanting answers. We want to know, how old is the earth? Were these 24-hour periods? And the biblical author was not doing that necessarily. He had a different agenda. I'm going to encourage the people of God. 
I want to show them who their God is. I want to uniquely let them see Him and how He created things. He didn't have our agenda, and that's good news for us. We don't get all the answers that we want. We don't get all the absolute scientific explanations that we want. The author was never meant to do that. He was meant to do something better for us. To show us God. That was his point. This is good news that he doesn't bow down to our agenda. That he gives us what we need. He doesn't give us the scientific explanation that we would hope for. And I think that's good news. And I think one author says this. This is a chemistry professor in the UK. But he says, If Genesis 1 were written in absolute scientific language to give an account of creation, there is no man alive, nor ever has there been, who could understand it. The scientific description of the how of the universe is beyond the understanding of any human brain. But Genesis 1 was written for all readers, not for none of them. Even if it were scientific to some extent, then it would only be accessible to those who have that kind of knowledge. And so here we see the goodness of the author who was inspired by the God of creation giving us something that we can read. Something for us, the common folk who need to understand the Bible because we want to understand and know God. And this is what he gives us. This was written for former slaves. This was written for uneducated Hebrews. This was written for us. Not for the elite. Not for the rich scientific questioners of our age. This is written for all. By God's grace, God gives it the way He does. We have to be thankful for how He gives it and read it how He would want us to read it. And so what we want to do when we, when we approach these days is we don't want to let the questions sidetrack us from what we're meant to receive from this passage. See, here's what we're meant to see. We're meant to see God. The God of creation. The one who spun this all into motion. That's what we're meant to see. The, the how... That's important. We want to search that out the best that we can. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to give ourselves to just whatever people will say. But we want to see God, most importantly. And that's what this passage really shows us. See, when we, we turn to this passage, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for, for God. We're looking to, what does this tell us about God? How can we worship God through this? So we're going to turn to the passage without turning back to these Creation Day questions. You can turn back in your home group. But this morning, we're going on to creation itself. And let's look at verse 3. So you're going to see this repeated phrase that God said. He speaks. He, he says these kind of things. He's showing us that He's a God of action. That He's not just sitting back in this lounging chair. That He's not just kicking back and hanging out. That He's a God of decisive action. That He speaks and things happen. He's speaking out of His infinite wisdom. Proverbs says it like this. That the Lord, by His wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. And so what we're going to see is that what God says gets done over and over again. God said, and then it goes on to say, it is so. What God says gets done every time. He speaks, and it's effective for its purpose. And that's important for the people of God. We have all sorts of, of really great voice recognition technology these days. So there's this thing on Amazon that you can, you can speak to it, and it'll recognize your voice. John and I had lunch the other day, and he said, you can say, okay, Google, and his phone will respond to him and do things. Like if, it's incredible to think about the technology and power that we have even in our hands, that we put in our pockets. But here's the thing, is that that took a long time to get to that kind of technology. We're talking man hours that we, we can't even number just to get to that technology. And if I said, okay, Google, go get me a pizza, it's not getting me a pizza. 
Now, it might call somebody to get me a pizza. I don't know if it can do that. Possibly. (laughs) But it's not going to physically get up and go get me a pizza. God's Word here is, is so effective. Everything hears His voice and responds immediately. What He says gets done over and over and over again. God says it and it's done. And what a comfort to Israel in the desert. A people that's ready to go into the promised land. Whose fathers and grandfathers had failed, had, had not trusted in the Lord. What a good word for them as they go into a place that is surrounded by people. They're surrounded by people that are all stronger than them. They have big cities. They're giants. They have better armies than them. What a, what a reliable comfort for them. That they know that God's voice, that His word, the things that He says, gets done every time. It's effective for its purpose. So when he says, I'll give you that land. When he says, I'll drive out your enemies, they can trust it. And this is what the author is doing, right? He's building their trust in God by showing them this creation account. They need to hear who God is and that he can be trusted as they go into this land. And this is what he gives them, this creation account. Their struggle was believing in God's word. And that's our struggle too. Believing and trusting in the word of God. And he says in Romans 8.28 that he's working all things for our good. But it seems like all that we have is pain in our life. Then how can we trust that God's working that for our good? Or when he says that we're not to worry about tomorrow. Because we can't add anything to our lives. When he says don't fear. When he says that we're to be holy. When he says that we're to go make disciples of all the nations. What are we going to trust that that's going to actually happen? How are we going to hold on to to know that we can accomplish those things? How can I know that God's working this for my good? How can I not worry? How can I not fear? God is giving us His Word that we would trust Him. One of the ways that He builds that trust and faith in Him is by giving us this creation account. That we might see that He says and it's done. That we might look to this creation and know that we can trust those words because He speaks and the universe happens. He says something and the universe comes into existence. It reminds us of how reliable, how powerful, how effective His Word is every single time. This is good news for us. His Word is powerful. And I love the, the idea of the universe just coming out. It seems like it's, it, we almost take it for granted. But this is a, a one in a million chance. Actually, it's more than that. Here's a quote from Science. Even if the universe contains as many as 10 billion trillion planets, I think this is a real number, this is a real scholar, so 10 billion trillion, we would not expect even one by natural processes alone to end up with a surface gravity, surface temperature, atmospheric pressure, crustal iron abundance, tectonics, volcanism, which I'm assuming is volcanism, (laughs) because I don't know any other explanation for that. Rotation rate, rate of decline in rotation rate, and stable rotation axis tilt necessary for the support of life. Ten billion trillion. We wouldn't expect this. I mean, that's a big number. I can't verify any of this evidence. I, I have no idea. I'm assuming this guy did his homework and he got to the ten billion trillion number in good faith. So, that's amazing to me. Like, God's Word speaks and this one in ten billion trillion universe comes into existence where we can exist. God speaks and it happens. He just says it and this comes into existence with the right volcanism that we need. Which I'm assuming is important. But ultimately, we know these words are effective because they're a person. Right? You look in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We can trust God's Word because it's also a person, and His name is Jesus. Like, it's effective because it's God Himself working. This Word took on flesh. We can see Him, we can hear Him, we can know Him. That's why it's effective. We can trust in this Word. And so why, what does God say? So the first three days of creation... God kind of separates. And then the, the next three, which we'll only deal with part of them, the next three is, is God filling. I think that's a, a decent way to kind of categorize. So we see in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So He separates light and darkness. Now think about this for a second. We have a concept in our minds when we hear light and darkness. We have something in our minds. We, we turn on light switches and it have, we, we know the difference between light and darkness. We have a concept of the universe in our mind because it, it is there. But God just thought all this up. Light was a thing that He just thought up that this was something that He wanted to happen. And darkness and this universe, like He just came up with this. Then He creates it and then He separates it and He names it. And God is reminding us of His sovereignty over all that He's created. To name something is to show authority over it. So we see the names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're probably familiar with those names somewhat if you grew up in church. But those are Babylonian names. Do you know that? We remember those names, but there are other names where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are our Hebrew names, right? Those sound familiar to our, our Bible ears. Well, why don't we remember those names? They got renamed when they were taken as captives into Babylon. Someone had authority over them and gave them a different name. And so we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're we're about to have a baby and we're going to name him. Or her, actually. It's a her. You guys aren't going to be naming our child. Some of your suggestions might be great. But we have authority over our child. We are going to name this child. If we let somebody else name it, we could end up with a really weird name. A name that we may not like. Is they live in our home. Alright? God is showing His authority over all of creation. That He's the sovereign creator. That He is the Father of this creation. That it's from Him and for Him. Now God says, let there be light. Now we don't see the sun until day four. It seems like on day four He forms the, the sun. So the light here is, is kind of confusing. I think the light that He's speaking of here is this symbolic light of life and blessing. We see this even in John when he talks about the beginning as well. That in him is life. And this life is the life of men. This seems to be what's going on here in Genesis 1-3. That God is the ultimate source of life and light. It's the initial step from this formless void into order. Into creation. Making itself into an orderly thing. He went from uninhabitable to habitable by God's light. By His source. By Him giving life. And so think about this for just a minute. Is that we see in Genesis 1-3 that there's this life. God said, let there be light. And there's light. And this light goes beyond the earth as well in Revelation. We see it outlasts the sun. It's before the sun and it outlasts the sun. And this is the light that's emanating from God Himself. But next God separates the waters. You look in verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Waters above and, and waters below. This is sky above and, and water below. Which still is, is confusing, but good. Right? God just thought all this stuff up and separated it the way He wanted. So what, he, what is going on here seems to be that God is finally tuning the atmosphere. Which might, does that take volcanism too? Like, there's this fine tuning in the atmosphere that has to happen. Too much sun gets in and we burn up. Think about your car in the summer. The window's closed, the sun goes through, it's burning in there. It's hot in there, hotter than outside. So too much sun gets in and it's too hot and we don't live. Too little gets in and, and things start to freeze. And there's more frozen ice and snow come, like it reflects the sun back even more, and pretty soon the earth is frozen. I'm pretty sure that's probably a movie somewhere. Day after tomorrow, is that it? The earth is frozen, right? If too little sun gets through, too much sun gets through, we're in trouble. And so God finally tunes the atmosphere here just by speaking, and it's so. Lastly, God separates water and land. Verse 9. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. One author says this, that our calculations show that the earth's ratio of continents to ocean and the placement of the continents allow for the greatest possible biomass of advanced species of life. And think about this. Like We have about 70% water. I think it's 71, 29. What I read. I don't know those things. Right? We wouldn't think, like, is that the right number for, for life? Is that the right number to, to let life be abundant and flourish on this earth? But God just speaks it. And it comes out of His infinite wisdom. And He knows. Like, this will be the best ratio of land to water for life to flourish here on this planet. This is prime for life. And God just thinks it up and it happens. So with this separation between water and earth, God is making this place habitable. So people and animals and life, all these things can live here. He's, he's working it out so that life can be there. And so we've seen separation kind of those first three days. Now we're going to see Him fill the earth. Verse 14. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that would be the sun, and the lesser to rule the night, the moon and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now it's interesting here that God makes these great lights, and that they're nameless objects. They're just great lights. He calls them good, they're great lights, but they're nameless objects. We've got to remember the, the context for which the author is writing in, that there's other nations surrounding the Israelites. They believe in other gods. One of those big gods in the Near East were sun and moon gods. They were these important gods in their life, important deities. Stars were said to control destinies. So, so here's the context that, that this author is speaking into. Sun and moon are big figures for others. The stars control destinies. And yet he says this, 
He put these out there. He just, nameless objects, he throws out into space as it were. So when in he's writing this, here's what's going on. God is putting other gods in their place. Like God just placed their God in the sky where he wanted it to be. So, like, what does that tell you about your God? What are they supposed to hear from that? Like, our God's bigger than their God. In fact, their God may not be even considered a God at all because He actually obeys exactly our God's voice. Wouldn't this have been comforting, helpful to the people of Israel as they're going into a place that seems like they have better gods because their armies are better, they can destroy us? No, our God just put your God in the stars. And He didn't even give it a name here. And it seems like He's downplaying it. That your God is, is this nameless figure. It's great and it's good, but our God just threw it up. Not worry, trouble whatsoever. Those gods, the so-called gods, are part of God's creation. They obey Him exactly as He says. And so who's the sovereign one? Who's the real God here? We should understand, as Israel should, that our destiny is not in the stars. We don't need to look to the sun and to the moon to control things or pray to the sun and to the moon. We don't need to think about our horoscope. We don't need to go have someone look at the stars for us, centaurs or whatever kind of creatures do that. We don't need to worry about that. Stars don't control destinies. The God who put the stars in the universe, He's the one who controls things. Let's go to Him. Let's turn to Him. God is putting other gods in their place. And then He he fills more. He fills the skies with these other nameless gods, but He he fills the earth too. If you look in verse 20, God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. God gives birds and and sea creatures. Specifically here, we think creatures, sea creatures. The word is kind of sea monsters. This is what God is creating, these these sea monsters. So I'm thinking here, humongous crocodiles. There's a picture of this. This is, I think, the largest crocodile. This thing is massive. Huge cry. This is what we're supposed to think about. God just threw that into the waters. Whales. Think about this. Think of you're just swimming and you see this guy coming along. Man, like that's a that's a big monster. This next one, sharks. If you're just watching the water and this thing jumps out, like you're you're terrified in some ways. I mean, where did this come from? Just jumps out of the water. And then you got this guy. I think this is up for like photograph of the year or something. This is a man of war. That is a, that is a strange creature. Blob with some electrified tin. I don't know what the, the man of war is what it's called, but I don't know what these things do or why it's floating there like that. But that's, that's scary. And, and you know what? That's exactly what's going on here. Is that these Canaanites around the Israelites, these sea monsters, these sea creatures would have been feared. They would have been thought of as, as kind of rebels to their gods. They have some serious power. They're these rebel forces. They're these powers of chaos. They're rivaling even their own gods that they worship. They're feared. And to God, they're creatures. Sea creatures. He just puts them there. I mean, I understand the Canaanites there. Being afraid of those things makes sense. But not when you know the God of creation. He's the one that seems like we need to fear If we're to fear something, He's the one that just put these out there. These are just out there filling the sea. 
God is amazing. He just puts these things out there, thinks these things up. Who thinks up a man of war? He continues, he fills the land. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So cows, lizards, mice, insects, crickets, all these are filling the expanse, filling the land that God has made as He wills it. Now if we just stop right here and we just think about these, these days, we're up to day six, we just think about these days, the sheer magnitude of creation is, is mind-blowing. That God did all this. His creativity, His detail, His, His greatness in creation is beyond our thinking. That He just thought these things up and speaks it and it is so. Now think about the wonder and the glory and the greatness of creation. This is before sin. Nothing is corrupt in the world. I'm assuming that it's like Chronicles of Narnia and animals are talking. All right, this, is a, this is an amazing place. And God just thinks it up, and it's so. It's beautiful, it's awe-inspiring, it's praiseworthy. But it's not an end in itself. And it was never meant to be an end in itself. And many have fallen into the error of worshiping created things rather than the Creator. Romans 1 speaks about this, that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. As amazing as sharks and whales and man-of-war... As amazing as those things are, it's really not what's on display here. Creation itself is, is not really what's on display. And it, these, these days of creation is not essential, not the central point of this passage. And so just as we look up at a portrait and we think, man, that's amazing. What's really amazing is the, the one who made that portrait. We listen to music and we think that's amazing. What's really amazing is the one who put that music together. It points us to the genius of an artist. It points us to the greatness of a creator that could put those things together. And so God's creation is amazing, but not in and of itself the point of the passage. It's pointing us to the creator. It's pointing us to the one who says, and it is so. So what's really on display here, what's central, what we're meant to receive, is God Himself. That He is the one who puts these things out there. Now I like how one author said it, that creation is a message. An invitation to be drawn into divine life. Creation is out there that we might know God, that we might come to Him, not to creation. We don't want to go there and stop, we want to go through creation to the Creator and know that God. Creation is great, but we error if we stop there. We have to go through this and see through it to not just wonder at creation, but wonder at the Creator. This is what it was intended for. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. See, the the God behind this creation is really what's on display. And what's on display is His creativity. He just thinks these things up. Just out of no gravity. It holds us down. So we don't float around. And the right kind of gravity so that we can walk and not be stuck. I mean, atmosphere. Once again, that, that, that not too much gets through and that not too much escapes. And that it's just the right kind of tuning for us to live. Light. That we, that we have light and that makes things grow. That we have these things called heat, sound, weather, different seasons. All these things God just thought up. Anteaters. We've seen an ant. Like God's creativity is amazing. And that's meant to be on display here. We look at God and we say, wow, that guy is amazing. He is creative. 
And so I read stories, and I watch movies, and I hear music, and I think, why in the world does a person put that together? Because I don't have a creative bone in my body. But all of those pale in comparison to a God who would make an anteater. God is not only creative, but He's orderly. And this doesn't seem to go together often in, in human life, that there are some really creative types that like maybe can't find their keys in the morning. Or don't know what time it is. But can put a picture and music together that will astound us. But in God, they go together very well. He's creative and He's orderly. These days are ordered. And I think maybe more than anything else, what we're supposed to see from the days laid out for us is that God has ordered things well. That God does have a sequence. They didn't just, not just chaos, it didn't just happen, it didn't just come about. God is ordering these things. God is the sovereign Father of all creation. And He's not a God of, of, of chaos and chance and indecision. He's decisive. He speaks in so He's ordered. He puts things together. And so creation is unfolding in the way that God chose to order it. And He did choose to order it. He says it, and it's so. One of the other feature of this creation, though, is this repeated phrase that you hopefully have caught on to, that it is good. It was good. God created, and it was good. In other words, it fulfills God's purpose. It obeys the commands of God. It was good. See, when we, when we see it is good, I mean, I, I get electronics, and you, you might turn over the electronic and say, past inspection, stamped in China, Korea, what places where they make electronics that I buy. And that's not what's happening here. Because that's like, it works, it'll do. God is not looking at creation and saying, oh, that, that passes, it'll do. That's not what's happening. God is delighting in His creation. He's saying, that is good. It's fulfilling my purpose as I intended. This is filling my will and my desires. This is exactly what I wanted. It's good. He's delighting in this creation. Now when you look around at other traditions, other traditions would have thought of creation as bad or unclean. I mean, a lot of the stories that we talked about last week were, were creation coming out of blood or death or, or all these kind of things. And not many of them would think of as good. In fact, many teachings that were opposed in the New Testament were that the body and the flesh and the material, those things are evil and the spiritual, that's what's really good. We, we face that some in, in the Corinthians. But God, He looks at the material, He looks at the earth, the universe, these things, these animals, and He says, that is good. He delights in this and the goodness of creation is only doing one thing. It's reflecting the goodness of the Creator. It's reflecting how good He is. Right from the beginning, before we're even in humanity, we see this God who is gracious enough to condescend to speak to us, who's gracious enough to make things that are really mind-blowing and creative and orderly, and He's gracious enough to make it really good. Because He is good. Remember, out of the fullness of the Trinity comes creation. His Trinitarian fullness spills over into the universe and it is good just like its Creator. And I think Christians are the people who should enjoy the things of creation more than any other. We should enjoy creation more than any other people on the planet because we uniquely can see it as good from its good Creator the way it was intended to be. Now, we haven't gotten to sin and brokenness and how that affects things, but in and of itself, God is saying this creation is, is good. And we can see it as good, and we have to enjoy it more than others because we can connect this good creation with this good Creator. And it ought to lead us to worship Him. One author says this, that God's gifts become avenues for enjoying Him. Beams of glory 
that we chase back to the source. We ought to look at creation as an avenue to enjoying and glorying in our Creator. We ought to take it from its ray to the sun. The source is where we're going because the glory we see in creation only points us to the greatness and the glory of the Creator. And ultimately, we see this as good because God didn't leave this creation alone. So we don't want to take and make the mistake of seeing creation impersonally. We don't want to make the mistake of separating creation from the Creator. The universe is good because God says it's good because it's following and imaging the good Creator. But we see this so clearly, do we not? And God thinks that His creation is good enough to become part of it. God cares about and delights in His creation enough in order to be part of creation to redeem it. To come to rescue and to save it. This is Jesus. The one who takes on flesh to redeem His creation. And one day, all of creation is going to respond back to Him perfectly again. He will say it. It will fulfill its purpose. It too will be redeemed and it will be good. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of God's redeeming work. It's a reminder that creation is good and that God loved it enough to come after us. We too are part of this creation. God loved us enough to pursue us as part of creation, taking on flesh, living the life that we should have lived but never could, dying the death that we deserve to die for our sins, that we might have newness of life, that we might be redeemed, that we might be renewed, that we might sing with all creation one day that God is good and He is worthy of glory and honor that He should have had for all eternity and will have for eternity future. This is our message. If you believe and trust in Jesus, then this meal is a reminder of His saving work, of how He came to redeem and rescue you, to bring you back, to renew you. If you're not a believer, our our encouragement here is to not to take this meal. Don't take the Lord's Supper. Take Jesus. Take the Creator, the One who was in the beginning, the One who took on flesh that you might know who God is, the One who came to perfectly manifest the, the presence and the greatness and the glory of God in flesh. Believe in Him. And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. But if you're a believer, come, take, and be reminded of of your great Creator and how He made a way for you to be reunited with and have life with the good Creator. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for creation. You are worthy of praise just for that. But we know that You have gone further and beyond. You have entered into creation in time-space history, taking on flesh that You might rescue Your children. Rescue your people. Come after your creation. And God, we pray that you would rescue more today. That if there are people who don't believe and trust in you, that you would soften their hearts and draw them to yourself. God, for believers, may this meal be an encouragement. That they have a creator who speaks and it's done. That when he says it's finished, it's so. That when he says that we're saved and we will be saved, that it's going to happen. And it has happened. That when he calls us children, we can trust him. And may we be encouraged and renewed in that reality. Father, be honored as we take the supper and as we sing and worship you together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.